Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today I'm going to be discussing inequality in Britain with two excellent guests, Danny Dorling, a Professor of Human Geography at the University of Oxford and author of a forthcoming book about inequality, and Deborah Hargreaves, former Director of the High Pay Centre and former Chair of the Child Poverty Action Group. Now, the state of inequality in this country feels fairly bad at the moment, and I hope we can get into that right away. But of course, but in the course of this episode, we're also going to get beyond the headlines about the cost of living crisis and ask, as Danny has done in a fascinating and in some ways quite hopeful argument in the May issue of Prospect, whether this might be as bad as things get. Could we be now at peak inequality? Could equality be about to get better? And what would it take for that to happen? So, Danny, can you maybe kick us off by putting the state of inequality today into context? Just how bad is it? It's extremely bad. So it's not as bad as Brazil or South Africa or the very worst countries in the world. But our level of inequality, income inequality in particular, is now back to what it was in the 1930s, shortly after the most common job for women was to be a servant, and you had upstairs, downstairs living. When you look across Europe, in most European countries, inequality is falling. It's always lower than ours, apart from in Bulgaria. Ours is currently at a peak. We've been living uh, with inequality measured over the whole population at a very high plateau for two, two and a half decades. The 1% have been taking more. The 90% have been coming more equal, <laughs> and numerous Conservative chancellors have celebrated the increase in equality of the little people while taking taking more money. Um, and it feels bad, but it may be, may possibly be beginning to go down. The tricky thing, though, is that last time it went down, which was 1920s and 30s, it felt awful. Mm. So... Even if inequality goes down, which I hope, hope it does, I do not expect people to be happy for the next 20 years because people in the top 10% of society who take 40% of everything every year really think they absolutely need that money and cannot imagine not having pay rises near inflation. And they're very angry. And you're talking senior school teachers. Mm. So we're on the turn. What we could do, though, 
is we could learn from the past and realize what's happening and not spend 20 years being furious that we're becoming together. Well, I applaud your optimism, Danny. I really do. I really wish we had reached peak inequality and we were coming down. I hope we are. But my feeling is that we're not. I think in the past we had a long period from the 1930s to 1970s of reducing inequality. But I think that was the huge effect of the Second World War. Well, well, the First World War to start with, then the Second World War. Huge impact on society, brought the country together, gave us more of a communitarian feel. It doesn't feel like that at all now. I don't feel that there's any equivalent catastrophe. Well, at least I hope there's not. I thought maybe the pandemic might kickstart something. But I think now we're returning to the same trends we saw before the pandemic. So, for example, in my area of expertise, you look at the top chief executives, big captains of industry. They did reduce their pay or at least their pay levelled off a bit during the pandemic. But then afterwards we saw, what do we see? 39% increase. You know, they're back to sort of four million pounds again now. I'd like to get more into that, you know, that question of a great catastrophe or what kind of event needs to happen to cause this shift. But before before we do that, can we talk a little bit more about what we're seeing directly in front of us? So in your piece, Danny, you talked about the strikes, the pay negotiations that are going on. And Deborah, your work has focused very much on looking at the pay of the highest earners. So, I mean, Danny, you make the case in your essay that we're seeing something different now in terms of pay negotiations and the pay deals people are getting to in the past. Can you explain a bit what you meant about that? It's a bit like a pile of sand is inequality. It kind of, if you imagine piling sand up and up and up and up. And when it begins to collapse, it collapses from the bottom. So it was in the 1980s that people below the top 10% began to see actually equality rising. It's only three or four years ago that we saw the 1% stop taking more and more and more. They're still taking a sixth of everything. We, we have yet to see the CEOs move, and of course they won't move themselves, but we're watching them. I tweet four or five times a week. I, I know a group called Max1221, who every week tweet in detail the salary of one of the FTSE 100. 12 to 1 being their recommended ratio. Of, of uh, yeah, top two average pay. Uh, nobody needs 12 times more. But they, they won't be shamed. I mean, I've been doing it for years and I've come to the conclusion that they have a very thick skin. They move with people who think the same way they do and there's no shaming them into taking a pay cut. Oh, I agree. They are utterly shameless. And and they were 100 years ago. So, so they're the interesting ones. But below them, you are seeing people who were on salaries of around about £100,000 not getting pay cut. Top civil servants... Top civil servants have had a 23% pay cut in the last 10 years. Junior civil servants, only 12. Now, people will be angry to hear me say only 12, but that's the civil service coming together. Further education colleges were nationalised last year by the Office of National Statistics, which is the vanguard of the revolution in ONS. When you, when you say this is now in the public sector, the unwritten rule about the public sector is that nobody can be paid more than the prime minister. So FE colleges have got a problem because there are a lot of people in there paid a lot of money. That all comes down. So we're now university vice-chancellors. They know it's career-ending now to take a pay rise. So 
on those groups, 100, 150,000, 200, 300,000, which sounds like a lot of money to people, but it's nothing compared to the four or five million a year that the CEOs of the FTSE 100 take for themselves. The groups just below the FTSE 100 CEOs are going down. So the question is, how do you tackle the FTSE 100? And first, you need to explain it, publicise it, explain how few days it takes them to earn what you get in a year. Explain three, how, three days. Three days. <laughs> how badly their firms are done. How many of the firms in the top 100 are no longer British firms? They're domiciled outside the country. The other thing, if you want to be nerdy and statistical about it, is by always looking at the firms that are in the top 100, you forget about all the ones that have come down, dropped out of the 100, where the CEO salaries have fallen. Or, if you look at another group of extremely rich, the Sunday Times 1,000 families, about three years ago the Sunday Times reported that their wealth as a group of 1,000 had fallen. The Sunday Times then knocked out the bottom 750, and now only report, reports on the 250 richest families. So this pile of sand is caving out the little group at the top, the very most greedy, maladjusted people who are utterly shameless, do not have... They are. I've met them. I'm not... I haven't met them. So you're saying that group at the very top are the people that are continuing, that tiny group at the top continuing to get paid more and more. Everyone else is becoming more equal. Now everybody else, now we've got 99% are becoming more equal. The, the, their reasons for wanting 30% pay rises is they see their life in dollars. You know, they've got houses all over the world. So they might even say they're not taking a pay cut. They're simply bringing it up. And, of course, they're paid much more than CEOs in, in other European countries, which run successful firms. Which well, do absolutely, but yeah. If that's quite a small group of people, but with immense wealth which is separate to income, and perhaps we can distinguish as well between wealth inequality and income inequality. But what difference does their situation make to your everyday person, your your work on a more average wage? And although it may sound like there's only 100 CEOs of the FTSE 100, the turnover is so high, you know, you can get two or even three in a year that you're actually talking about a 1,000 or more people. The chief finance officers can sometimes be paid more. So when you look at that group you're looking at a few thousand people. Then when you look at bankers in London, uh, sadly the European Union no longer publishes because it can't, the statistics. We have over 2,000 bankers paid over a million pounds a year, more than all the rest of Europe combined. The next highest number is Germany with 197. So our bankers weren't going to go anywhere. But we have this group of a few tens of thousands. Why does it matter? Because it means that somebody lower down in one of these firms who's, say, receiving £300,000 can go, well, it's nothing compared to my boss. Right? So it morally also supports the inequality. those people have enormous influence. They have the ear of government and they do affect policy. So they do definitely... I mean, we've seen the CBI implode, actually, but through big three bodies like that, they do affect what, the, what government decides and, and mostly in their own interests. Yeah, and, and they're... They fundamentally support a model that says that some people have the brightest minds and are really special and others don't. And this allows all other inequalities to be justified in society. They're a very useful group because if you look at them and their lives and what they do, it's not a great success story and their families. But they live in a bubble. They they recommend each other's pay-through remuneration committees and so on. Some of them, I think, may think that this is the end of times and they're just trying to get what they can because they can't see it carry on anymore. 
I suspect that that's partly why. And also they know they probably won't be in a job in a year or two years' time because the turnover is so high. Because they're looking at the pay negotiations, they're looking at the state of the economy. and They're, they're, they're looking at the housing market, who's going to buy their goods um, because, you know, incomes are going down in real terms. They can they, And they're working out how they're going to support their children and grandchildren, how they're going to pay the school fees for the grandchildren, how they're going to house their children, which country they might leave to and go when things don't work. A lot of them are already, they don't, uh, they don't see a great future in, in Britain. That, that's why the firms, so many of them have moved. They're offshore. You know, one uh, that Max 12 to 1 did this week is just moving to Kazakhstan as its headquarters. It's still listed on the FTSE 100. It was in Jer- Jersey, but it's now moving its headquarters to Kazakhstan. That's this week's FTSE 100 CEO that I did free tweets on. When you say what kind of disaster would it take, we're watching it. We, we don't. We, it's happening right now. We are watching it. We, our government, which increased health spending to one of the highest in the world in the pandemic, wasted thirty-seven billion on track and trace, fifteen billion on PPE doesn't work. A huge amount of money had to borrow that, and then trash the economy so that we now have to spend more on our debt than Italy. It we are in, but it's a very British English crisis. So. So, Danny, you think the the table is set for this tipping in inequality. Deborah, you expressed some scepticism about that a second ago. Can you explain why you think we're not heading for an adjustment in inequality? Well, I take Danny's point that we have this massively overpaid group at the top. Else may be getting equal, but I think there are some social trends that weren't there in the 1930s, which have now entrenched inequality. And and the main one is obviously housing. So people who own houses, people of my generation, and I'm of a certain age, who bought houses when we were first starting out in London, we haven't done anything enterprising. All we've done is move up the housing ladder and, and make a huge amount of money just because prices have gone up so much. So now we're in a position to help our own children get a foot on the housing ladder, and that is entrenching inequality through the generations. If you haven't got a family backing, I, you I, can't buy anything I in agree, London. but would you help a child of yours now buy a flat in Hackney for 1.2 million in the knowledge that flat may well be worth only a million at the end of the year. So your 200 grand that you may be helping your child with is just going to disappear and be burnt into dust. So why would you help a grown-up child now in a housing market that is tanking? Well, housing in London has been a sure bet for a long time. Okay, it is going down. Interest rates are going up. But I think people still keep putting money into it. I think there is still a lot of interest out there. And it's a very finite amount. You know, that's one of our problems. We're not building new houses, not nearly enough. And okay, it's a London-centric problem mainly, but it does spread to the southeast. It spreads to big cities. The Telegraph newspaper when the 2021 census results came out, produced a map of just how many houses in London have two or three spare bedrooms in them. Okay, so we've got a finite amount of land. You can't build more. But increasingly, this housing is empty. Empty and and, and owned by foreign buyers, actually, who, who just leave the lights off, never come here. They should be taxed out of the market. Yeah, and, and for some of them... This is a very long-term investment. It's a 50-year investment. It doesn't matter. Um, 
but they're only in the very the very heart of it um and this is what i mean as well by the pile of sand because you know when we had the little housing crash in 1989 and the one in 2008 your standard thing that the english have now learned not my grandfather's generation who are used to prices not going up the english have now learned don't worry it'll always recover and this makes the situation really precarious because right now people will not sell for the lower prices increasing numbers of these houses are empty buy to let landlords are trying to sell because they can't pay the interest rates but they could if they were willing to become uh normal but but we you know by our behavior we make the cliff edge higher and higher and higher i don't think we are going to know what the next event will be but there have been so many events in recent years that are unprecedented Yes, I yeah. thought it might be the financial crisis in 2008-9 and yet that just, we all returned to business as usual. Bankers went back to bonuses a couple of years later and then of course it was a pandemic which we thought might kickstart it. And we, if we really want to do something, we can help people at the bottom. That £20 extra for people on yeah. universal credit during the pandemic, I think that really helped people. Yeah, so I mean, Danny, you also speak in the piece about... Instead of something, some great readjustment in yeah. the economy, you talk about policies that have been put in place that are raising people's incomes at yeah. the bottom. And that can make a real difference. I think that might be something that both of you agree on. But Danny, can you tell us a bit about some of those measures that you think might Well, help? the decisions of this government to raise benefits in the state pension by the rate of inflation, even though if you're poor, your rate of inflation is higher, they ummed and hard about that. They didn't want to do it, but but they did. So people on the lowest are getting the highest percent increases, not absolute. Um, and still not enough, right? Absolutely not enough. The really interesting thing is the European country. There is one European country that's doing the most dramatic radical things. This European country in November introduced a system where if you're a family and you're reliant on any benefits, which is two out of seven children... Then for every child you have aged 16 or below, you get uh, £25 a week. That's almost £4,000 a year. Quite incredible radical politics. Uh, well, I, yeah, I asked a, a group of students uh, which country it was, and they came up with 14 European countries before one of them got it. And it's a very different country for us. Now, you might think it's Finland and so on. It's, it's very different, different politics, different society, different ways. Uh, it's Scotland. Oh, Scotland. Oh, no, right. But but this really, yes. really matters over... And this isn't realised. Scotland, during the pandemic, uh, towards the end of it, in August last year, convened their COBRA committee rooms. They met every week because of the cost of living crisis. They brought in regulations or the threat of it on landlords so they can't increase rents. They brought in the Scottish child payment, which you get on top of child benefit, which, of course, in Scotland you get for the third or fourth child as well. It's not tapered, so you don't lose it. It is the biggest change in 50 years, almost anywhere in Europe. It takes the inequality for children, but sadly not their parents, for children to the levels of Finland by December if the Scottish government manages to keep it, which might explain why it's under such attack. And Scotland now, the state schools get 20% more per child than in England. That's all kinds of things going on. And it is funny because you... 
people in England, we don't report it in, in English newspapers. Um, those who know just think this is a bizarre experiment that won't happen. But but the irony is that Nicola Sturgeon, she had two aims. One was independence, uh, but the other was, because she grew up in a normal part of Glasgow, was not to tolerate this. Uh, and we have we have the model going on of what you need to do. Oh, Scott, Scott, yeah, say, we need to get this for more widely publicised, really, and into policy here, into the policy discussion here, yeah. really. Yeah, so, so, so CPAG and Scotland, the only official measure of child poverty, child poverty in Scotland is now much lower than in the southeast of England, in the, excluding London. Ch- Scotland has a lower child poverty rate than the most affluent part of England with the lowest rate. It's entirely possible, but not if your British newspapers are not reporting it, not if your university students in England have no idea that this is happening. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. After the break, we'll talk more about whether we're on the way to a more equal Britain. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Deborah, you, as well as looking at CEO pay, you also have spent a lot of your career looking at, at child poverty. I mean, do you think that that type of policy is an effective way to make inroads on inequality. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And I would invest much more in the early years, early years education, um, sure start centres, which have all, well, many of them been closed by this government, but which were put in place under um, new Labour. They made a huge difference, a really big difference. I really can't understand why people at the bottom um, of of the income scale now aren't on the streets with their, you know, pitchforks and and their and their placards because how anyone copes currently with the rising cost of food, I just don't know. It's um another point I'd like to make actually, quite an important one, is on the corporate side of things. We're seeing a lot of inflation going through now on price rises. 
And this isn't, you know, Bank of England was warning against big wage increases so that inflation wouldn't become entrenched. And yet now companies are using this as an excuse to push up prices and make record profits. That, of course, translates into huge bonuses and big increases for top pay within those companies. And many of those price rises, I think, are gouging. They're not necessary. And this is causing more hardship for people at the bottom. And another point on um, corporate profits is, of course, that feeds into dividends. Many of those on top pay receive quite a lot of their income from dividends. And dividends obviously get paid into wealthy pensions, people who who still have a stake in the stock market. So that, again, is another area where we're seeing a rise in income inequality for those at the very top. And the TUC did some work earlier on this year with the High Pay Centre showing that dividend income had gone up much more quickly than real wage rises in the past five years. So I I think that's another area that needs to be tackled if we're going to ever do anything about bringing the top into any kind of line. And I mean, what does that tell us about the the impact that changes in income can have? Because that sort of seems to speak to also how the very wealthy generate more wealth is through deploying the wealth that they already have, the investments. So... Yes, when if you're a wealthy person, you actually don't need to do anything except sit there and your money makes yeah. money. And uh, So is anything happening in Danny's picture or in yours that tackles that side of, of well, the picture? There should be more progressive taxation, in my view. I mean, we should see some sort of wealth tax or land tax, maybe, on unearned income. So there's a lot of unearned income in property. And I, I think, you know, you need to do something maybe with council tax. Um, it was always called a mansion tax under the Vince Cable ideas, but which I think is a slightly wrongly worded. But you could do something on that. If you wanted to, you could have a very a or, much more progressive tax system. Or if you had to because you ran out of other options. This is the interesting situation. So a couple of weeks ago, the government handed... BMW in Oxford, 75 million, so they wouldn't close the factory. Not much reported, but 75 million. At the same time, they took away the 75 million from the already depleted social care budget for councils because they are terrified that the country will be downrated on its credit rating and our interest rate will go up again. They have, some people get very angry about me saying this, they have run out of money. We can't grow enough food for ourselves, the rate of the pound does matter. And they are dancing around, worrying about yeah, seventy-five million, which is a tiny amount of money. I mean, the uh, government's always had to make cost-benefit analysis at the worst. No, no. no, in the past, and it was Tory governments tended to increase debt. They could, they could borrow more. We had far greater debt. You could, you could bring it down. You could play around with it. You could, you could, and there's lots of arguments on the left that said we needed to invest our way through recessions and so on. We appear to have reached the end of the road of that now. What this government could do, don't think they will, don't think they have the imagination to do it, but they certainly have the ability. They could introduce a sovereign wealth tax, similar to the one in Spain, in a situation of emergency in the autumn statement of, of this year, 2023, uh, the most qualified person to do that, who knows most about the very wealthy, 
is the Prime Minister, who would be the only Member of Parliament who would have to pay it. He worked at Goldman Sachs. He knows how people evade these things. Can you if, just explain what what that actually means in practice? Well, what that actually actually means is that you are taxed probably just a fraction of a percent on a estimate of your wealth, which can be done most easily from your hand up your land holdings, but can also be done from the tax that you pay on your interest, which in effect means that you've declared some of your wealth, so you use the past records. But there are lots of loopholes. If Richie Sunak didn't want to be a footnote in history. Most Tory Prime Ministers are footnotes in history because there have been so many. You would only be able to name a quarter of them, right, really, and you probably know your politics. If he wanted to be remembered like a Disraeli, then he would do this, completely outflank Keir Starmer, who won't touch the thing because he's moved so far to the right, and possibly be in a coalition or even win an election. But I don't think Richie Sunak and I don't think Jeremy Hunt... I, I don't uh, think they would do that. I don't think they have the imagination. I think Michael the, Gove understands. The, the, other, the other big policy intervention could be 100% inheritance tax. Then you don't pass inequality down the generations. And I would be perfectly happy to pay that because that is unearned income does, mostly. Yeah, yeah, does you, anyone do that? No, 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 but... So does you, that exist anywhere? Um, I don't think it does exist. Does oh. it, Danny? Anywhere? Well, remember, only four percent of only four percent paying inheritance tax at, at the moment. It kind of exists in a lot of countries where there are rules about uh, who can inherit, so you can't just decide who inherits. So it's yeah, not inheritance tax, but it's actually yeah, much it's better different. control. Yeah. The problem with, I mean, I certainly with inheritance tax. The problem is, it's okay for me and you, ironically, to do it, but. If you have no pension, your children have gone to a normal school, they are renting and they're in their 40s and you're in your you're 75 or 80, the only money in your family is the £280,000 your rather drab free bed semi is worth. And that's the only hope for the grandchildren and the school Yeah, uniform. but you'd be below the threshold then, wouldn't you? There is a threshold. I think it's yeah. £300,000, is so, yeah. so, so if you can pass that. You don't just have the house, right? You have a little bit more, and of course, you have the Daily Mail telling you what'll happen. So I wouldn't go s- straight from only four percent of people paying it to everybody with with uh, wealth over that. I wouldn't do it immediately; it scare the horses. And of course, it's very slow. It's very slow because you have to wait for people to die before it happens. Although there's going to be a tax. huge handover, this generation is going to. There's going to be a huge handover of wealth coming in the next twenty years as people like sixty to eighty start dying, because those are the people with the housing wealth. Well, it already happened most dramatically. It began in March 2020. We saw a huge rise in particularly elderly people. Fifteen percent of all men over ninety died very suddenly in the next two years. One in ten women over 90 died who would live for several more years. It's COVID. You were 10,000 times more likely to die if you were in a very old age than if you were an older teenager, 10,000. Most people who died of COVID in Britain were in their late 80s or 90s. We've repeatedly said over decades that the middle class lived 10 years longer. People didn't realise that it is the rich... Those houses went on the market. We had a flight to the countryside, but only because there were the houses for them to fly to. The really important thing about this risk, all the stats that came out were age-adjusted. 
and it's rather like putting out stats for men on what is your likelihood to go bald after we've taken out the effect of age. And you can go, oh, look, bus drivers are more likely to go bald. The key thing about going bald is how old you are. The key thing about COVID is how old you are. That money from all those COVID deaths has transferred down to the children. So we've seen a sudden already. But that of it which is in property relies on somebody being able to buy your property in future. 57% of young people now go to university. 90% of them have student debt. They are the vast majority of future house purchasers. Maybe more people from abroad, the plutocats, will buy themselves a small house in Fulham as an insurance and along and leave it empty or rent it out to some poor soul. Well, that, yeah, that just makes things worse though, doesn't it? That makes it worse, but when the world's rich and the well-off and somebody who owns a factory in China looks at Britain and thinks of it as a safe investment to hedge their money, the Spiegel did an article ab- about how the country's falling apart this week. At some point, you go, actually, wouldn't that be better buying somewhere in France or Germany? Or, you know, do you really... The, the, the three big cities on the edge of Europe, which have kind of failed, are Moscow, Istanbul and London, former centres of empires. You know, would you buy a flat as an investment in Moscow or would you buy one in Istanbul? So, so why, why would you now buy one in London? One of the things I'd like to come back to was... Deborah, you talked about the importance of things like Sure Start centres and policies that are enacted in the new Labour years. How much difference can a single government make to inequality in this country? Oh, hugely, I think you can make a difference. If you have, for example, the new Labour years had a target to meet for a reduction in child poverty, that concentrates minds. And then you look at what everyone says about interventions for helping people overwhelmingly it's in those early years when um, children need support and then they and then you can nurture them as they get older in order to lead better more productive lives but it takes money I mean that um, investment was huge and there was also a huge investment in the NHS at the time we've now seen 13 years of Tory and coalition government which have drained that of all its resources. The NHS is on its knees. I mean, the Sure Start centres have closed. People are on very minimal benefits and very, very low-paid work, you know. I just can't quite see how things are going to carry on. I mean, I agree with you. We, as a country, we're we're on our knees. And, And what surprises me is that people aren't more angry about it. You know, people aren't more shocked and more angry. And we tend to be very complacent. We've been lulled into enormous... If you look at a, a graph of strikes, which you can get from the 1880s onwards, the 1920s is absolutely enormous. I'm sorry, the podcast, so my hands are up in the air. You know, incredible levels of, of strikes, the general strike and so on, but just unbelievable levels. And many of them failed in the year they were in, but they were part of what helped turn the tide and frighten governments because they realised that people would walk out and simply stop and things became much more equal. We had... A few strikes in the 1970s. Compared to the 20s, it was tiny. Although back in Oxford, there was one year, actually 1969, when I think they they went on strike over 600 times in a year in the Cowley Works. Uh, but the strikes in the 70s failed. And they stopped. They, they were partly trying to preserve the equality we'd won, and they failed. <laughs> the, the strikes last year 
days lost from strike, you, you need a magnifying glass to actually see them on the graph. All right, there's, we have so few strikes now, more than we've had for a long time, but tiny in comparison mm-hmm. to the past. We are lulled, we are complacent, we will go to the situation where now a majority of children, we've got a brother and sister in England, are going hungry at least once a month, seriously hungry. You've got a natural experiment in how much can you condition people. Nowhere else in Europe takes this. How much can you condition, educate people? Tell them that they got it, got it good enough. Tell them, oh, their grandparents never had central heating. Don't worry. The fact you can't put the boiler on is annoying, but at least you've got the radiators. Um, it, it's tragic to live here and grow up here. It's fascinating as a social science experiment. You know, imagine having as to a, how far someone can be pushed, you mean? How yeah, far we can be pushed as a population? Imagine having a kind of lab experiment where you have a sort of series of animals in different cages and you do different things to them to try to work out which ones can you condition so that you can treat them really badly and they don't start biting you. That That is almost like... Well, tr- tell me the other country in Europe where people are as subservient and well-behaved as, as this. So you know, if we're to make a again, the historical comparison that you do in your piece, Danny. We have this, I think we're sort of agreed that we're seeing at the moment a combination of shocks yeah. that amount to, if not a great war, which the historian Walter Scheidel said in his mm. book is the great leveller, but at least cumulatively a dramatic shock to society. But what we're not seeing is the popular protest against that situation and the, the the demands that the government do something about it. Yeah. Do you think that's the missing piece then? Uh, no, I think it is when the people at the top watch problems happening in their lives, MPs and their actual families, um, that it'll change. We are getting protests. I just walked through a brilliant oh, one yeah, this just, morning. Oh, yeah, the Just Stop Oil protests are just outside, but there weren't very many of them. I was a bit disappointed. No, no, they're that. deliberately not many. They've learnt so that, they, so that the police can only arrest four or five so they can keep on coming hour after hour they're learning oh okay Uh, and you've watched them learn so but a lot of the protesting and it's often the middle class always has been there's actually protest 60s and so on and in france you know it is actually the middle class who are throwing a petrol bomb at the door of a church looks really effective for the cameras you only stand at the door a lot of our middle class efforts for protesting are going into to this Mm -hmm. Deborah, what's your perspective on... Well, actually, climate change is the coming catastrophe, in my view, and that is coming fast. And we are, again, incredibly complacent about that. I think that might be the thing that has to change quickly. And we need to get away from, you know, we have all these really well-defined measures of economic success, which are all going to have to change because you can't continue to grow and address climate change. And so inequality is obviously part of that big picture. And I think in the next 10 years, we might see some big shifts in that where we try and, I mean, you've got to do it with a very authoritarian government, I think, because otherwise no one's going to go along with it. But we're going to face some sort of climate emergency if we don't do something. And I think we might, given that we aren't doing very much now, there could be some emergency that pushes us or shocks us or makes us change things very rapidly. It could be one of those tectonic plates shifting. That's an interesting point about the kind of government 
that you think might... I think we've got to have a green autocracy because I don't see it happening otherwise. That sounds like a subject for right <laughs> discussion question on another day. But we've talked, just one last question before we round up. We've talked about the shift in inequality, the coming tipping of the trend as as if it's something that's inevitable or, or that it will happen at some point. It's just what brings it about. But but is it? Is it? Is that change in the trend inevitable or could we be could we continue on the, the trajectory that we are on? I feel sadly we could continue on this trajectory because people, well, as we've spoken about during this podcast, people are complacent. They're not angry enough. Those at the top are extremely thick skinned. They justify what they're taking. They continue to make the decisions that will increase their own their own payouts and very few seem to have any real awareness of the bigger picture yeah it's possible if you remember gordon brown used to go every summer on holiday to cape cod used to go a lot to america to see and our new labor government quite liked america and saw it uh, and we have a precedent of what could happen if where we have gone carries on it is one in ten women, as in Baltimore, being evicted with their children from their homes. That simply just being normal. It is, in America, millions of people being homeless. Not the number we had the highest in Europe, but becoming normal to sleep in your car and not have a house. Our prisons might have to be the largest prisons in Europe, but boy, we could go up to half a million prisoners if we want to head towards the US level. We could have a prison building boom. That's only... This isn't fancy. This is just if we become US, we could see our life expectancy drop by a year as just happened in America because of the drugs overdoses and homelessness. We could, I don't know, let's, let's take it forward. We could introduce guns like America for freedom. We could bring back <laughs> hanging if we're going to leave the European <laughs> Convention on Human Rights. Please, no. Well, Russia can't have hanging because it's actually a signature, but we could. That, that, I mean, I can paint you a picture of us going to towards the States and we could, like lemons, quietly so on, walk into it. Our top universities could fully privatise so that we can charge £60,000 a year. People talk about it. It's yeah, also- and let's not forget that the top CEO pay in America is routinely $20 million. Yeah. $30 million. You know, so there's we could a long, go that route. There's a long way we, we could go further we, in the direction of inequality. There's if- a long way and there will be people not very far from this place in a little street called Tufton Street sitting there saying and why aren't we because look at the average earnings in Alabama it's so high they're so well off in Alabama we should be Alabama there are people and they sometimes even say it in public meetings sitting next to me about how better off Alabama is than us and they believe it so and so there are institutes and foundations who would like this and think it will be the right thing to do and in the natural social science experiment the question is have we become so lulled that we will let them do this to us and our children and grandchildren? That's a very philosophical note yeah. for us to end do on. Do we care? Do we care enough? Yeah. Thanks so much, Danny and Deborah, both of you, for joining us this morning for this conversation. It's, as usual, raised as many questions as it has answers, but hopefully we can come back to some of them in the coming months. 
And if you've been listening at home, then do go out and grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect Magazine, which includes Danny's essay, uh, as well as writing from Stuart Jeffries on how 15-minute cities have become the latest target for conspiracy theorists. There's a debate between Nick McPherson and Pettifer on whether austerity was necessary, which might also be of interest to people who've joined today. And there's a diary from the Ukrainian editor Sevgil Musaeva on life in Kiev. So that's all for today. Thanks very much for joining us and listen out next time for the Prospect Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.